as we prepare to hear the scripture out of 1 Corinthians, the danger of a scripture like this is it becomes so familiar that we forget the point. I've got two upcoming weddings in the next month, and both are asking that some of these words be read at their wedding. And yet, what's so interesting to me, Paul didn't write this as beautiful language for a wedding. Paul wrote this as a deep challenge to each of us as how we are to live within the body of Christ. And so as you hear these words, as Laura reads this morning, look around you because this is what we are being asked to be, demanded to be with each other. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels... But do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, The partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. And here what happens if we follow what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 13. Laura? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came, And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, 
The crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. I couldn't believe that it's already been eight weeks since we started this series on gracious Christianity. As we come to a close on this, there are a number of things that come to mind in, in looking at the reading in the book again. What kept coming to mind for me was why I became a United Methodist. In other words, I, you know I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, but then I left the church for about 15 to 20 years and began to search again for a place where I felt like I fit. And it kept coming back to United Methodism. And I'm sorry to say it wasn't because of you. I'm staying because of you. Because I find something here that is a delight. I find something in Wesleyan theology that is definitive. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. But I want to begin first in going back a little bit and looking again at where we've come. If you remember eight weeks ago, it was, a, it was a beautiful montage of pictures of creation, of the scripture being read by four or five different voices, of pictures coming up on the screen of differing aspects of creation as we talked about the beauty of God and the gift that God has given to us as we seek to live on this earth. And then, remember, we talked about human nature and whether or not human nature was inherently evil or inherently good. And I come down on the side of the good, the inherently good peace. If we are truly created in the image of God, then how could we be created badly? And then we talked about power and that power that ignites us, this power of the Holy Spirit that can flow through us and that grace that comes out of that power of wind and of flame. And then last week even we looked at what it means to be the church what it means to not only reach out beyond ourselves, but even look inward. And today I want to take that a little bit deeper. And it all can be described on, according to the Greeks, at least originally, what was the lowest kind of love. In the 60s and 70s, that shifted for many of us, I think, that that agape became the definitive word for the love that we seek in God and that God seeks from us. But agape... In its original meaning, agape meant servant, servant love. The love of a servant for the master or even for the master for the servant. There was a love that permeated those kinds of relationships if they were healthy. And Jesus decided that he needed to take one more action to help his disciples understand much more readily what that meant. So at the Last Supper, at least according to John, what he does is he, as, as the Passover feast is kind of beginning, Jesus gets up from the table and he wraps a towel around his waist. And he goes, disciple to disciple, all the way around that three-sided table. They're all reclining anyway. That's what you did back then. And so their feet were outward from the table. And part of the reason for that is the feet were always filthy, absolutely filthy. And so there Jesus is going disciple to disciple with a basin and a towel and washing their feet. Feet washing was the assignment of the lowest of the servants, 
the lowest. And he said, this, this is how you must perceive who you are and what you do and how you approach life. This is what it means to love, that we are to serve one another and be defined by this kind of love. They didn't like it much. And sometimes we don't either. It's hard to serve. But there are things that help us deepen that understanding. And that's where I go back to Wesley. I love Wesley's understanding of grace and service. I love how he takes it and builds on it. And as Wesley begins and and walks us through some of this, what we have to have in the back of our minds is that for Wesley, it really was about service. It really was about understanding who we are in the sight of God, but also about how we are with each other. But at the foundation of John Wesley was always Scripture. Scripture was absolutely at the base, and it needs to be for us. It's why next week we begin this study of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is going to help us go deeper, and Acts 1.8 is, I said, that definitive verse that helps us understand not only who we are, but where we're headed. Read the verse over and over and over again, and I will give you a gold star next week if you can repeat it to me. Okay, maybe a Starbucks card. Would that be more motivation? <laughs> Dave Plowman, just got, I just got Dave's attention. So this is good. <laughs> but that is definitive for us. But I want to talk just briefly about how, how John Wesley perceived the world. And we've talked about this on a number of occasions. But before I get there, I just want to make the comment that I wrote about in The Good Word this, this last week. Is I think there is some significant confusion today around what Christianity is and maybe what it isn't. I mean, as Christians, most fundamentally, we are to be followers of Jesus. Is that right? Am I wrong on this? Isn't that what we are? That's why Christ is in Christian And to be followers of Jesus means we have to understand and know clearly what Jesus did and who he was, how he spoke, and the actions he took. And we are to replicate those as much as we possibly can. But what I find so often from my more liberally, I mean my more um, theologically conservative friends is they, they hanker back often to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is that book of judgment. And and more often, as we look at the Old Testament, it's that book where, you know, what you see is failure upon failure upon failure and the consequences of missing, missing the mark. And yet when you try and connect those things in with Jesus, it doesn't fit very well because what Jesus continually said is, and if you look at Matthew, the verses that precede what Laura read, Jesus continually says, You've heard it said. You've heard it said, and then he defines a law, many of them on judgment. And then he says this. But now I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And then you look at stories that he tells or that we see in the Gospels like the prodigal son. The prodigal son who goes out and does crazy stuff. 
and yet whose father was waiting there in the bend of the road, anticipating that his son would come home. And instead of judgment pouring from this father's mouth, what do you hear? As, as the son comes home and goes through his rehearsed speech, Lord, I have, or Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer. And then I just see the father's hand gently clapped over the mouth of the son and say, because what he was going to say is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But I don't think those words ever get from his mouth. But what the father does is he accepts that son back, puts the robe and the slippers and the signet ring. And that's defining love. That the father turns from being the big authoritarian figure into the one who then now serves his lost son, agape love. Well, what about the story of the woman caught in adultery? I'll preach on that someday, and the first thing you're going to hear come out of my mouth is, and where in the world was the man? Go look at that scripture again. Somehow he has disappeared. Oh, where, where's the man? He's probably at the back of the crowd ready to stone the woman. And there they are. Can you see them gathered around this woman caught in adultery? The worst, the worst of the sins. The worst of the things that you could do and be. And there's Jesus saying to this crowd, angry crowd, ready to kill this woman. Any of you, any of you who is without sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. And I love that scripture because what it says is from the oldest who drop their stones first and walk away to the youngest. But they all leave. They all leave. And then that agape love of Jesus looks at this woman and says, where are those who would condemn you? And what are those words that he says? Neither then do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You talk about service. And by the way, he was not standing over her, looking down at her. He was down with her on that same level, looking her in her eyes as she was knelt before him. Neither do I condemn you. Why is it? Why is it that as people who are professed to be Christians, that we jump so immediately to judgment when in fact, if truly we are followers of Jesus, we can't go there. Judge not, or you yourself be judged. But there is a process by which that can become more deeply ingrained in us, and that's where I go back to Wesley. For Wesley, there were three kinds of grace. I love this description. Three kinds of grace. The first is that prevenient grace, that wooing grace that seeks to surround us no matter who we are or where we've been. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've seen, no matter what we have done in our lives, that God is constantly there, constantly flowing around and through us. I'm looking out the window right now at the wind beginning to pick up and think of that's how I see this grace of God constantly surrounding us, wooing us toward a life of faith. 
But for all of us, there, there has to come some point, some way, some point where we decide that this is for us. That we make a decision to follow. And I think more appropriately today, it's decisions to follow. For me, I got to tell you, I am a stubborn guy. And I had a, a, a convergence experience that was overwhelming. And again, I'll preach on that sometime. But for me, it, I had to have the four by eight upside the head. I mean, that's just, I'm slow. And it was boom and immediate. But you know what? That was number one. This justifying grace, this grace that aligns us with God, that says on our part, okay, I get this. I get that you're wooing me, and I will now choose to follow you. And then, as we make that decision, and I think that decision comes again and again and again, then we can go deeper. And that's Wesley's understanding of just of sanctifying grace, of that holiness that allows us to truly feel God's presence in our souls. What I love about those three is I think for many of us it's a process, isn't it? That we we need to be wooed by a God who loves and accepts us. We need to know that God is there. But God expects a decision. So have you made the decision? When was the last time you said, God, I will follow you today? And maybe that decision needs to happen every day as you look in the mirror, as you get ready to go on about your day. And what are you doing in your life to go deeper now? We have to have those things at our foundation, friends. Those understandings that God is there, we have to have those things. Or what will happen to us as we just continually go out is we'll lose energy and our focus will diminish. But, but here's the other piece of it. And Laura read this this morning. Did you hear those words from 1 Corinthians 13? Did you hear them? It's not about marriage. Although maybe every relationship should have this. It is about this. He begins that section with these words. And now I will show you a more excellent way. And you can put in parentheses to be the church. Love. We are to be patient with each other. We are to be kind in all our endeavors. We are never to be envious, never to be boastful or arrogant or rude. What we do is never to be self-serving and is never to be easily angered. We can get passionate, friends, as we disagree, but it cannot lead to that kind of anger that goes beyond resolution. We are to never keep a record of wrong, something I think that is very often a challenge for a church. We don't delight in anything that is evil, but we always rejoice. And here's the most difficult thing. We are to rejoice in the truth, even if the truth might be painful. The truth truly does set us free. 
this love that we practice in and among ourselves always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres through everything that happens. Everything. And it's most clearly defined, this love, this service-related agape love in ways that we seek to serve each other. And that love never, never fails. Never, never fails. I want to close with these words from John Wesley. Very, very powerful words. And these could be our benediction every Sunday. But these words can't come true, I don't believe, unless we live the rest of what I talked about today. In his time with his pastors, John Wesley always closed with this benediction. He said, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. You see the sequence that builds the foundation for how and what we are as a church. You see it? You see it? Do you feel it? Let's pray. God, you are flowing through this place in magnificent ways. You have helped us understand what it means to be the church. And for this church, for decades, your presence has been felt here. As we continue to look at outreach, Lord, help us to look within as well. Help these things to be that evaluative model for each of us. Not only as individuals, but as we come into relationships with each other. With patience and kindness. Always, always hoping to serve. To serve you. To serve one another. And to wash the feet of the world. Guide us as your disciples. All this we ask in the powerful name of the one we seek to follow and emulate, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.